Well, it's great to be back with you. I'm reminded this morning that it's been 20 years, almost to the day, when I began to get involved in Cole Community Church. This is our church home. You are our church family. And uh, one of the unfortunate things about our church sending out its people to the ends of the earth for the sake of the Great Commission is that those relationships begin to get thinner and thinner and thinner over time. And that's kind of sad because... We want those relationships to stay strong. Some of our closest friends are here in this church, in this room even. And one of our desires for the couple of months that we're going to be in Boise is to reconnect with you all. As Peter said, we've got a couple of evenings scheduled in August that we hope that all of you will be able to come out for either one or the other. Please don't come to both. We don't have enough brochures or something probably. But come to one or the other. And we really do look forward to the chance to share what's been going on in our lives and our ministries but anyway, it was about 20 years ago when I first started getting involved, and I was reminded this morning of soon after I got involved, I went up to one of the elders and said, I think I'd like to become a member of this church. Probably my voice squeaked or something, and I said, what? Why would you want to do that? Well, okay, well, we'll, come, we'll come talk to you after the service. So at the end of one of the services, they took me into this room about the size of a, a large closet, and 12 overwhelming-looking Men stared down at me, and, and I remember there was a swivel light, and it was actually turned right at my face, you know, and, you know, are you sure you're a Christian white? I mean, it wasn't that severe, but, you know, time has a, sense, has a tendency to sort of exaggerate things. But uh, I think they've uh, sort of simplified the membership process a bit since then, hopefully. But uh, as Peter mentioned, we were with Frontiers. Frontiers as an organization exists for one reason, and that is to plant churches in pioneer situations among unreached people groups, specifically Muslims. Muslims today represent about 50% of the world's unreached people groups today. And so on behalf of approximately 500 missionaries on the field in different Muslim countries, from North Africa all the way to Southeast Asia, I want to say greetings and also say thank you, because in a very tangible way, Cole Community Church has a ministry in each and every one of their lives. But it's great to be with you this morning. I look forward to sharing his word with you all. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4 is a very interesting chapter of the Gospels in that almost the whole chapter is Jesus' teaching, specifically mainly in parables. And at the end, we find this very, very exciting and unusual event. Jesus was being followed around by thousands and thousands of people from Israel and what would be today Jordan and Syria and Lebanon. Eight, seven, whatever thousand were there with him. And the, the Sea of Galilee is a huge lake, sort of oblong shaped. I don't know, perhaps some of you have been there. In some ways, it's kind of like Lucky Peak in that in many places, it just sort of gently rises up from the shore in these rolling hills. And uh, it's a lovely place, actually. And Jesus preached to the crowd, to the multitude, all day long. What we have in Mark chapter 4, of course, is just a synopsis of the things that Jesus taught that day. And the same chapter, the parallel chapters in, in Matthew 13. But Jesus was preaching all day, and then this event happens. And let's read it together, starting with verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to the disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. 
There also were other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Very interesting story. First thing we observe is that Jesus is tired. There's different kinds of tiredness. Uh, earlier in my experience, I've had the chance to be very tired from a full day of very you know, physical, strenuous work. I've also had times when I've had to speak all day. Actually, not unlike today. Well, today's a little lighter, but other times when you're speaking and thinking and on your feet and dealing you know, with mental things. And in my experience, the latter is the more tiring kind of exhaustion. But we see here that Jesus had been teaching all day. He was exhausted. So they said, they take him just as he is. In other words, he didn't have a chance to go change clothes. He didn't have a chance to get a bite to eat. He didn't take a shower or whatever it was they did back then. They just took it. So let's, let's go. Let's get out of here. We want to kind of get away from the crowds and go on the other side of the Lake of Galilee. And in my mind's eye, the disciples want to party. I mean, they've been, you know, going through these seminars and workshops all day long, and they want to have some fun. And so they get on the boat, and they set out for what's probably going to be a three- or four- or five-hour trip, probably light winds at the time, uh, across this lake. And they say, Jesus, you know, hey, come on, stay up with us. We're going to play some pinochle. We're going to share some fishing stories, whatever, you know, hang around. And he just said, guys, forget it. I'm exhausted. I've had it. I'm going to crash. So he goes in the stern which I think is in the back. I'm not 100% sure. There's like a starboard and a third. Anyway, I think that's in, this, in the back on this cushion. And, and they take off. Well, suddenly, there's these gale force winds. Very unexpected. Uh, huge waves. I don't know, many of you, I'm sure, have been on sailing boats where the, you know, you're on waves. And I remember once when I was, uh, I think in my teens, I was on this sailing ship in the San Francisco Bay. And it was just a normal day of rocky waves. But for me, it was like the scariest thing in my life. There was this thing in the bow, in the front of the ship, called this rail that goes around. And they call it a pulpit. Sort of ironic, I guess. And, and I situated myself there. And I was grabbing on. And I was hanging on for dear life because we're going up. And like 20 feet down. And then 20 feet up. And, and it was worse than that, that evening on the Sea of Galilee. And this was very, very strange. Why? There's no way that these fishermen would have taken this trip if they had anticipated the storm. They were experts, not only at fishing, not only at sailing, but at this particular lake. They knew the conditions of this lake. There's, they didn't anticipate this at all. Something strange was going on here. This was a completely unforeseen uh, event. And just as an aside, let's note here something ironic. Here we see encapsulated in the short story the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus together. It's not often we see those dual natures of Christ in one place. One moment he's asleep. And I can just imagine him sort of hung out you know, on the cushion there. and I don't know if Jesus was snoring or whatever. I, I hope that's not blasphemous to, to suggest that maybe Jesus snored. But then a minute later, he's up commanding nature. Waves and wind. And so both of these, the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus together. Well, 
let's see what happens with this story. Jesus stills the storm. How did he do it? Read again from verse uh, 38, shall we? Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him, said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? He got up, rebuked the wind, said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? What it was going on on this trip as Jesus was asleep had reached a crisis point. And Jesus does this incredible miracle. I mean, imagine, if you will, you're at one of your, your sons or your daughter's Little League game, and all of a sudden there's these huge dark clouds come over and it starts raining and pouring rain, cats and dogs, and the kids are huddled together in the dugout, you know, with the coaches. Our kids remember we had to do that a few weeks ago. Uh, and one of the coaches steps out of the dugout and says, no problem, I'll take care of this. Rain? Stop. And it stops. Clouds, get out of here. We need some sun for this game. And all of a sudden, the clouds just go. And the sun starts shining brightly. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd like the coach to be on my team. If he can do that with baseball, you know, the same as he can do with nature. But I mean, that would just be awesome. And yet Jesus does that. He commands nature. He takes authority in that way. And he turns around and reproves the disciples. Now, let's get into the story a bit. Imagine you were there that evening. You were one of the disciples on the boat. You set out on what's going to be a very routine trip. Very ho-hum. You head out. It's quiet. And then suddenly, these huge winds start stirring up the waves, and the boat starts rocking this way and that way and up and down. And as the text tells us, it begins to envelop the whole ship. And... It just fills up with water, higher and higher. And you're bailing out, you know, with, with buckets or whatever they had. And, and you're, the, ship is, the ship is sinking. And you realize you're going to die. So finally, in a last-ditch effort, you say, Jesus, you know, wake up, come on. Don't you even care? We're going we're to drown here. And Jesus gets up, takes care of the, the storm. That's no problem. And re- turns around and, and says some difficult things to them. And I just imagine... That evening lake became as still and as clear as a sea of glass. I mean, think the last time you saw a lake at, in the evening with, that's just without a ripple. You know what I mean? And the, and the moon shining brightly, and you know how that reflection comes down off the lake? And that's what it was like. It was completely quiet. And the only thing they could hear was the water beginning to drain out of the sides of the boat. And their hearts probably still going, boom, 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 boom. Who is this guy? What's going on? I don't know about you, but I don't think the disciples forgot that experience the rest of their life. Well, what's the point of the story? Well, for me, I don't think the point of the story is simply, gee, what wonderful miracles that Jesus can do. I mean, that's perhaps part of it, but I know it's more than that. In fact, the Holy Spirit has so arranged the story so that the same story is present in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there's something that the Lord wants to communicate to us in a strong way, besides that. And I think it's this. It's what God was doing in the lives of those disciples. Because God is doing the same thing in your life and my life. And it occurs to me this morning that you all get the sermon version of this, and those up at Lake Payette may be getting some other version. Hopefully that's not the case. But this may be the easier route to go this morning. <laughs> um, let's ask ourselves for a minute, why did Jesus rebuke him? 
I mean, Jesus says, why are you so afraid? What do you mean, why are we so afraid? Of course we're afraid. We're about to die. I would have reacted the same way. Wouldn't you? But Jesus says, why are you so afraid? If that wasn't Jesus asking the question, I'd think, that's really a dumb question. But it was the Lord. Let me ask you this. What's the opposite of faith? Is it doubt? Is it maybe some intellectual hang-ups about something you read in the Bible? Is that the opposite of faith? The opposite of faith is fear. Let me say that again. The opposite of faith is fear. See, the core of our spiritual experience as human beings is not doctrine, as important as that is. It's not mental categories. It's a relationship with God. And so when we fear, we're saying, God, you can't take care of me. God, you, you're, just, you're not big enough or you're not involved enough in my life. You're too far away. You may not even exist. God, I'm fearing. And that's sin. You know, it's like the proverbial child up in the tree. The dad comes along and says, okay, Johnny, let go. I'll catch you. And what's the kid say? No way, dad. <laughs> uh, well, no, just let go and I'll catch you. you know, you'll be okay. I'm, I'm right underneath you. I'm strong enough. No, there's no way I'm going to let go. Why? Because he's afraid. He, there's a lack of confidence that dad's really going to be able to catch him and take care of him. And it's kind of the same way between us and the Lord. I don't know what your last crisis was personally. I'm sure every sort has been experienced in this body. Financial crises, problems with children, health situations. After the first service, a good friend came up and said, Dan, I can't believe how timely this message was. I'm being sued. And uh, he's beginning right now to begin to apply some of these things. What did you do the last time? Well, if you're like me, you probably use every resource at your command, million phone calls, get on the computer, do everything to bail out from the trial, and then maybe at the last minute, oh, yeah, I probably should pray. Lord, don't you care? Can you see what's going on here? And that's very often the kinds of prayers that we pray, isn't it? Um, but what is it that we're supposed to learn from this? Um, what are the lessons that we're supposed to take for this? What is it that Jesus was doing? Well, number one, I believe that Jesus had allowed this storm deliberately. God the Son and God the Father collaborated to cause this storm or to allow this storm. I mean, we're not going to debate this morning causing it versus allowing it, but God allowed this storm to occur deliberately. And in my imagination, I sort of imagine the Lord asleep on the cushion, but not really asleep. Sort of going, you know, one of the, one of the disciples coming over here. Because this, this thing had been planned. He was doing something in their experience. And he wanted to make them disciples who were strong in faith. Who could face any challenge for the, in the Roman world and what was going to come in taking the Great Commission, the Gospel in that generation. And you know what? The Lord is doing the same thing in your life and in my life. God is intentionally bringing storms into our lives to teach us because he wants to craft you and to mold you and to make you a man or woman or child who has strong faith in the Lord who can handle these situations. Let me share with you two of my least favorite verses in the Bible. In fact, if I could just sort of take a black marker through them, I would, but I don't think that's what I'm supposed to do. James 1, 2 through 4 says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. 
Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking in nothing. I heard of a man who called some friends together and says, come on, let's party, bring some records over or tapes or whatever it was and some soft drinks or whatever it was and let's, let's have a party. And one said, Bob, why? Well, my wife just left me and I just got fired from my job and the dog just bit me and the air conditioner broke and James says, you know, I'm supposed to consider it pure joy. So, you know, let's come with me and consider it pure joy. Second verse says the same thing. This one written by Paul. Romans 5, 3 and 4. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. Now, hope is not a minor word in this chapter. It's a very major word. Paul wants us to be people of hope, which means having the most positive outlook for the future, which gives us joy in life and the ability to ride through life's difficulties. Men and women of maturity and character and hope. What's the opposite of hope? Well, when you think of tomorrow, next week, next year, 20 years from now, what's, what's, what's the first gut reaction? Is it this? Or is it hope in the Lord? Well, he wants us to be people of hope. Let me give you an example of sort of the storm and how these things come into play. Uh, as Peter mentioned, we were in a particular Muslim country in the Middle East for a number of years, seven and a half years um, in that particular country. And I worked, we worked very closely with a Jordan, uh, Jordanian Muslim convert named Abdullah. Now, Abdullah is going to be here in a couple of weeks, so we have to stop calling him Farouk. That's been sort of his code name. And you may be wondering why I'm lifting the cone of silence. But uh, if you call him Farouk, he's not going to know who you're talking about. And uh, besides, the authorities in that country seem to know everything that's going on anyway, so there's no point. But anyway, Abdullah and I worked very closely, and there was you know, a Muslim convert fellowship group that began to grow, and yet there were many problems and a lot of difficulties. Three years ago, our general director called and said, Dan, we need you to move to our international headquarters to serve as field director. A uh, very big responsibility. I mean, we, we didn't want to do it. We didn't want to leave. We, but it just seemed that the Lord was in this decision. So in August of 94, we moved to our international headquarters. And I said to Abdullah, I said, Abdullah, you need to take over as team leader. I, I really believe that you're the Lord's anointed in this situation. And uh, you'll be the team leader over two other families. One is the, the Mannings, who are, are there, uh, who will be back, I think, in about a year. And... Um, and Abdullah was petrified. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want us to leave, and, not, and we didn't want to leave. Well, to make it worse, as soon as we get over, we moved to you know, England, our international headquarters, Abdullah gets a knock on the door, 12 o'clock at night. Ten secret police agents come in, arrest him, go through the apartment picking all kinds of things. His wife, his two daughters are kind of sitting there, you know, what's going on, Daddy? And they put him in prison. They talk about some very serious charges with very serious prison time and all these threats, which were pretty empty threats. And, I mean, can you imagine the storm that that was for Amal, his wife, for Abdullah, who was in solitary confinement, and for us in England? Now, I was very concerned about Abdullah, of course, but what also was going through my mind was, Lord, seven and a half years work down the drain. There is no way this ministry is going to survive this. And I know you're ruling the planets, and I hope things are going great in Mars. But, you know, right here, this is a mess. And somebody's made a mistake up there. And there's just no way. Uh, I thought you told us to go to England and take this assignment. 
And you know what? God just poured out grace on Amel, on Abdullah, on the believers, on the, the evangelicals in the community there, that, I mean, from a Christian background. And that thing was the best thing that could have happened in the ministry. Because in my 15 years' experience dealing with Muslims and Muslim converts, Muslim background believers don't move forward in their walk with the Lord unless they break fear. Unless they somehow get victory, a measure of victory over fear. And there's, of course, lots of things that they have to be afraid about. Well, Abdullah's imprisonment, all of a sudden, just like in a day, turned around, he was released, apologies made, everything's fine, and the ministry got back on course. And you know what? That broke the back of fear in that ministry today. So today, there is a Muslim convert church in Jordan under the leadership of Muslim convert elders because of that storm. Um, but we don't like storms. Think for a minute. Uh, what is it that your children like? Now, two of my children are right here. Maybe I can ask them. I know, just knowing them, they want an unending stream of ice cream, cake, toys, opening presents, not just on Christmas, but every day if they had their, their, their wishes, playing with their friends, doing playing trampolines, rollerblades, uh, TV shows, and, you know, just kind of, you know, that sort of thing. That's nothing else. No school, nothing, you know, anything like else. Well, guess what? As a parent, I've got a couple other agenda items. Because I'm concerned about their long-term development and their character as people and being prepared for the future. Well, guess who's right? Are the children right in their agenda or is the parent right? Who votes for the children? Who votes for the parent? See, kids? Well, it's the same way with us and the Lord. You know, personally, you know what I want to see for the rest of my life? I want to see perfect health for me, Monica, the children. I want to see the kids grow up to be strong believers, having strong believing spouses who really serve the Lord. I want to have perfect, did I mention perfect health? You know, no problems. I want to have absolutely delightful financial situations. Just perfect security, comfort, unending enjoyment. Uh, and then maybe when we're about 95 years old, Monica and I painlessly simultaneously slip into a sleep from which we never wake. That would be my agenda. Well, what's the Lord's agenda for my life? I don't know. But I think it probably includes some storms. And just as the parents are right with children, the Lord has the better plan for you and for me, whatever those might be. Second thing we learn is that these kinds of trials are absolutely necessary. You need them. I need them. Because if we don't, we're going to slip into a spiritual slide, into a spiritual dullness, Christian mediocrity, and those things are dangerous for you and for me. Either we're moving forward or we're sliding backward. These kinds of things are the only antidote for that kind of spiritual backward slide. You see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all with unveiled face are beholding the Lord as in a mirror and are being transformed into His likeness from glory to to glory. You've heard of that verse before, right? In other words, from one degree of glory or Christ-likeness or maturity or completeness as full people, as you know, spiritually and so forth, to another degree, to another degree. And I imagine this sort of stair-step thing, you know, glory, moving up to another level of glory and glory. And that's how it works. Well, what's the problem? Well, you and I, we get to one or, you know, one or two or three levels of glory and we think, Lord, thank you so much. This is wonderful. I'm so glad that I've matured to this point in my Christian life. I used to be such a jerk. 
And, and now I've got some of those bad habits under control, and people like me a little bit better, and life just makes a bit more sense. It's wonderful to be a Christian. I think I'll just set up camp here, if that's okay with you. And guess what? The Lord wants us to say, whoops, nope, don't set up camp yet, because you're kind of at 1,500 feet, I'm taking you to the summit. And the only way is through what? Is through those kind of storms. Some examples. A friend of mine shared with me many years ago that he took a job in another state. Very good job. He was a professional. I think he worked for a university or something. And he moved to the other state, bought a house, began settling into the job and house and so forth. Didn't sell the previous house in the previous state. Figured it would be you know, it was in the hands of you know, some competent real estate people. No offense to anybody in the audience who may be in that profession, Peter. Um, but it wasn't selling. And month after month after month went by. And eventually, that family, despite the decent income and everything else, was on the verge of bankruptcy. Chapter 9 or 11 or whatever the chapter is. I mean, they were going down. And he was just, just shaken to the core. The whole family was. And he was on his trip and on his way home, finally the Lord gave him grace to pray. And he said, Lord, we may be bankrupt. Maybe we won't, but I just, I believe you're in control. And I accept whatever you have for us because you're our shepherd. I got back in the car and drove home. When he got there, his wife said, Dear, guess what? The house sold. And as they compared notes, the house was sold the exact time he prayed that prayer in the car. Another story I heard just recently, a true story. Um, a couple gave birth in hospital, of course, and there were severe birth defects in the child. And they were, of course, devastated. I mean, this is an awful situation. And they, they kind of got away in the waiting room there and just knelt down together and prayed. And the doctor, who was an unbelieving, sort of cynical man, was listening around the corner, eavesdropping, as they prayed, Lord, we're, we're extremely grieved by this. We don't know why you have allowed it. But by your grace, we're going to love this child as best we can. Well, the doctor just melted and gave his life to the Lord. You know, the Lord uses these kinds of means of working in our lives, not just now, but He has from the beginning. I was going to bring up Exodus 15 and look at a passage there, but we don't really have time today. Uh, but for 25 centuries, God has worked the same way over and over and over to bring maturity and depth in His people. Remember back as God was bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the Promised Land, Several times, particularly Exodus 15, 16, 17, there's a series of crises that the people go through. There's no water. And then there's no food. And then there's threats from enemies. And it's very clearly engineered by God to teach them that, hey, I'm in control of the circumstances. I can give you water like that. I can give you food like that. Don't be overwhelmed by the circumstances or preoccupied, but learn what I'm trying to teach you. God works this way and has been working this way over and over and over through the centuries. God does not want us to be preoccupied with the visible circumstances, how difficult they might be. And this is a hard lesson for me to learn. Very hard lesson. You know, one of the difficulties for a Bible teacher is that if somebody's going to stand up and give a sermon, you expect him to be somewhat strong in that area, right? I mean, if I were to preach on financial integrity, next week you saw me cheating in my business. I mean, what kind of thing would... I mean, that wouldn't be quite right, right? Well, but as I come to speak and share in this pulpit, I want to share from my heart. I want to share with you what the Lord is teaching me. And guess what? The Lord usually doesn't teach us things that we're already strong at. 
In other words, this is an area that I'm struggling with. But God is teaching me to realize that He has the power to control life. Well, that one's easy. I mean, even unbelievers sort of believe that. If God is all-powerful, of course, He can raise chairs, He can do volcanoes, He can you know, give you money, whatever He wants to do. Uh, secondly, though, I'm having to realize that God is intimately involved in my life and wants to be involved and control the circumstances of my life. He's my shepherd and he's in charge. He's in control. Well, that one's harder for me. In fact, you know, this is sort of true confessions time. About six months ago, just in my prayer life and stuff, I just realized that I was not strong in the area of trusting the Lord. I mean, I knew up here that, you know, people have to trust the Lord and God's in control and God is sovereign and Romans 8.28, which we'll look at in a minute and so forth. But I was weak in this area. It was if... In my heart, in practical circumstances, I lived as if God was far away. That I, I really sort of believe that if somebody is not really, really working hard at planning and preparing and taking charge of their, you know, their situations and circumstances and relationships, if somebody isn't vigilant and anticipating problems and heading them off at the past, then their lives are going to collapse. They're going to be a mess because you know God is well; He's somewhere else. I mean, how's that for a missions executive? <laughs> Not very strong faith. And so the Lord is teaching me that, no, whatever those are, whatever those storms are, He is in charge. Whatever the needs are, He is in control. And at the end of the day, I, need, I shouldn't be self-sufficient, nor should I be anxious. But I need to learn to relax in His shepherding care. Well, I mentioned Romans 8.28. This is a verse that we've all read probably, and yet we all kind of glance over it, or maybe we'll sing a song about it. But, you know, it's a bedrock truth. If there's nothing else that you get out of the message this morning, take Romans 8.28 with you, because it is the reason why you and I can be at ease and at peace in the middle of the storms. Let's take a new look at it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, for all true believers, and all true believers are called according to His purpose, that's explained in the next verse, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. In other words, God <clears throat> is weaving a tapestry, which is your life. Your tapestry is different than mine, different from everybody else's, but it's beautiful, it's complex, and God is weaving good things, difficult things, storms, and His sovereign plan through your life. And that's Romans 8.28. About 80 years ago, a theologian wrote about Romans 8.28. His name was Benjamin Warfield. said this, God will so govern all things, so we reap only good from what happens. Did you catch that? We may be thinking, well, that's easy for some ivory tower theologian to say. But let me tell you about Benjamin Warfield. He was married, and he were married in their 20s. They were going on honeymoon to somewhere in the Alps for a skiing vacation. And on the way, she was hit by lightning in this really freak accident. And the rest of their life, she was an invalid. She was paralyzed. And he would just have, have this life of managing his work between the college and going home and taking care of Annie. And yet this man could write this about Romans 8.28. God will so govern all things, so we reap only good from what happens. This is what John Piper, 
one of my favorite authors, writes about Romans 8.28. If, uh, if you live inside this massive promise, your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside Romans 8.28, all is confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Outside this promise of all-encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and alcohol and numbing TV and dozens of futile diversions. There are slat walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies, fleeting insurance coverage, cardboard fortifications of deadbolt locks and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. But once you walk through the door of this massive and shakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There come into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply can't be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good all the pain and pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. When God's people really live by the future grace of Romans 8.28, from the measles to the mortuary, they are the freest and strongest and most generous people in the world. Well, how does all this rate relate to the Great Commission, which we've alluded to today? I mean, obviously, as a mission speaker, I have to talk about missions a little bit. But also, I want to share how does all this thing about learning to be trusting in the Lord relate to what Jesus says to go into all nations and make disciples? As you're probably aware, the Great Commission is emphasized in the New Testament more than any other subject. It's in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in the book of Acts. In Matthew 8, 28, uh, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In Mark, Jesus says, Preach the gospel to every creature. In Acts 1.8, Jesus, just before his ascension, says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts is a story about how the first century church, at great risk, at great personal cost, was thrust out to reach the known world at that time. It's very, very hard to go to a, a place that's strange, that's different from your own culture, your own climate, your people, what you're used to, and take the gospel. And it would be a stupid thing to do, unless it were true. Unless it really was Jesus' commission. It's sort of like being a Christian. There's no reason to be a Christian, unless it's true. If it's not true, let's all go home. But Jesus' words were meant to have impact on the life of every believer in the church. Not just the nice addition that sometimes... Unfortunately, it sort of gets relegated to that. Now, one of the reasons I want to bring up, you know, that this message relates for this congregation in terms of the Great Commission, in terms of pioneer church planting in particular, is that I believe God is going to call some of you. Maybe out here, that group, maybe this group, maybe this block, maybe all four blocks this morning. God is going to call some of you to some of the most difficult places to take the gospel to the least evangelized peoples on earth, unreached peoples, part of the 1040 window. And as such, you've got to grow in faith. You've got to grow in your capacity to trust the Lord through difficult circumstances.
Let me read to you an email I just received from a a team leader in Albania. As you know, for the last five months, Albania has been a near anarchy uh, with the collapse of the government, I mean, sort of the near collapse of the government, and it's just been a very dangerous place for anybody to be in in the country, but particularly Christians and missionaries. So this team leader in Tirana, who's, who's planted four churches there, writes to me, says, as far as the political situation here, it continues to go in waves. The violence in the south has increased quite a bit. Last Saturday, we had people representing five different churches visiting us, and of those leaders in four have been held at gunpoint. The one church that hadn't was Tepelina, but one of the believers there was shot and killed, and Irma has been verbally threatened several times. Last night, a man from a town named Gramps stayed here. He was shot in the head trying to protect a missionary, and the bullet actually ricocheted. I don't know about you. I've heard that missionaries were hard-headed, but I've never quite heard that before. Anyway, he says, good way to boost a person's faith. Rampant crime is all over the country, but here in Tehran, it's better. Still, gunfire and grenade explosions are so common, no one even notices anymore. I have a feeling that it could get much worse here during or after the elections on June 29th, especially if they are contested, which is almost inevitable, which, of course, as you know, they were. Uh, And just, you know, as field director, I'm continually hearing very, very difficult situations, and I feel so powerless to help a lot of these guys, and it feels sort of lame to say, well, trust in the Lord, but, you know, the fact remains, for those of you who are going to be going, we need to learn this lesson. A second reason why I think it's very vital for everyone in this congregation to learn this is that you know, God calls us to also be senders. You know, Cole has many goers, many who have actually gone. We've mentioned China and Germany and other places. But that means that, that people in the church, really everybody in the church, needs to be senders. If there aren't people to send, nobody's going to go. I mean, the whole thing collapses unless there are senders. And I wanted to share with you all that I am very impressed with many of the Senders of Cole Community Church by your faith. It takes faith to persevere in that kind of sending ministry. I believe it's very difficult to keep to stay mindful of the world in Boise, Idaho. I mean, I've only been here three days and I've already forgotten. You know, uh, half my job and the, the the fields our our teams are on. I mean, there, you know, there's so much going on here. There's the Boise River to tube down. There's the latest restaurant at Eighth Street Marketplace. There's the you know, the Morrison Center, there's this, there's that bogus basin, and it's difficult with all that to stay mindful of people in Iran or the Minangkabau of Indonesia who just now have their first New Testament or the turmoil that the missionaries are going through in Tunisia at this moment. And for you all to stay focused as world Christians is just great. I just want to commend you for it. It takes faith to persevere in giving, to you know, to be sacrificial in giving because, you know, you have to believe that there's a reason for it. It takes faith to persevere in prayer. Not just you know, one or two prayer meetings, but many pray month after month, even day after day. And I'm just I'm humbled by that kind of persevering, believing prayer. And serving, and many are involved in serving in logistical ways. I mean, just this week, people helped us tremendously by getting our house set up. And, but you have the thrill as senders of being world Christians. You're part of the advance of the gospel into every country. And every story of joy and triumph and even suffering, you're a part of that. And the Lord really bless you all for that. Let's close. I'd like to read just briefly as we close from David, from the Psalms, Psalm 31. 
I believe if David had been on that ship with the disciples, he would have not given in to fear, but probably would have slapped him around and said, wait a second, do you realize the Messiah is on this ship? It's not going down. And it's a temporary storm. Here's what David says. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. In that context, in the Middle East at that time, you are my God. You are the one I'm going to depend on for my life. My times are in your hands. What a wonderful prayer. I just challenge you to pray that today. Lord, whatever I'm going through, my times are in your hands. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you bestow in the sight of men on those who take refuge in you. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. You felt that way, haven't you? I felt that way. You know, maybe the Lord's out there somewhere, but as far as I'm concerned, as far as my life, my little old tiny life, I'm cut off from the Lord's sight. Well, not really. David said, it's just in my alarm. I felt that way. Yet you heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Love the Lord, all his saints. Be strong. Take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Let's pray together, shall we? I'd like us just to reflect quietly before the Lord for a moment, with our eyes closed and our hearts bowed before Him. And if it's appropriate in your case to even repent, as I've needed to repent in these last few months over these, these issues, if you recognize that perhaps in your life it's just been a, a cycle of fear, at the storms. Just repent of that right now. Tell the Lord you, you do want to turn from that. If your attitude towards problems and crises has always been one of anger or distress without seeing that the Lord perhaps has his fingerprints in it, just tell the Lord you're sorry of that. And perhaps if you haven't been involved in his work the way he would want you to, perhaps out of a lack of faith, a lack of things moving you forward to be involved as you ought. Let's just all repent of that where we may need to. Lord, we thank you so much that you're in our ship. Whatever the storms are, they're going to be temporary, and our ship isn't going down because you're with us. Lord, there's so many hard things of life, and yet this life itself is so very, very brief and fleeting, and you hold us so firmly in your hand. We acknowledge this morning, you're our shepherd, you're our God. And we just thank you for the sovereign control you have even over our tiny little lives. Each one of us can feel so small at times, and yet you care so intimately. Thank you, Lord, that you're able to teach us these things and take us from one measure of maturity and completeness to another, to another, to another, even as you take us through the storms. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.